0: Welcome to Check Yourself, a health and wellness podcast brought to you by the Community Health Education Center, or check, at Salem Health Hospital. This is Leah Burkhart, and I'm a community health educator here, and this episode's hostess. And today, I want to spend some time talking about the challenge of change. This is a time of year when many of us start contemplating the kinds of things we want to let go of, new things we want to integrate into our lives, resolutions, perhaps. And in today's episode, we'll cover, you know, what it really takes to make change stick. We'll cover terrain that uh, is brought up by James Clear. We'll talk about research by Charles Duhigg. We'll cover models of change and why that's important to understand as it relates to moving through different phases of sort of change readiness Model of changes and competencies. We'll talk about willpower and why some of us seem to have more of it than others and to what extent we can build it. And we'll talk about sort of resiliency as it relates to change. You know, how do you bounce back and how do you navigate those instances in our lives where our Our greatest hopes are dashed because something comes up in our lives, so some people seem to be able to bounce right back in and, you know, navigate challenges really easily, and others of us really seem to flounder, and we'll talk about why that is. And finally, we'll talk about what it takes to create an ecosystem of, you know, success as it relates to making changes in our lives. So, yeah, looking forward to it. With that, let us begin. Okay, so here it is, the end of 2021, at least that's where we are as I record this, and we're inching toward the start of 2022, and we're thinking about what we want to focus on for this coming year, what we want to bring to life, what kind of resolutions do I want to make? All good stuff, but here's some fun facts. The average American quits on their resolution by February 1st. So one month in, and we're kind of going, eh, (laughs) never mind. (laughs) 27% of people make New Year's resolutions, so it's helpful to know that to begin with. Only 27% of us are regularly making these resolutions. Less than 8% of those people actually stick to those resolutions throughout the year. So a couple of questions to be thinking about here. First, what's happening to those folks that aren't sticking to their resolutions? And also, what's happening to those folks who are? Why are they so flippin' special? So we'll start by talking, instead of about resolutions or goals, we're actually going to go first into the realm of habits. There's a quote by James Clear, who wrote a book titled Atomic Habits. And it's probably one of my favorite lines. He writes, you do not rise to the level of your goals. You fall to the level of your systems. So that kind of gives you a hint for where we're going in this episode. When it comes to change, and change is just hard. It's designed to be that way. You know, we're, we're interesting creatures. We're clever little monkeys. And we are able to sort of automate a lot of our behaviors. And it's a neat trick. You wouldn't want it any other way. You wouldn't want to have to, for example, perpetually be relearning how to drive. You want to be able to learn something and then kind of file it away and have an autopilot button built into the system. So it makes it makes it so that when we learn something, we don't have to perpetually be applying constant bandwidth to it over and over and over. Eventually it becomes rote. It's just that the downside to that neat little trick, is that we can get to a place where breaking that habit if we don't want it anymore is hard, and creating a new one when we've already got a bunch of other habits in place is also hard. So with that, let's start, before we move into the realm of how do you create habits and how do you create systems, let's kind of start with where most folks who work in behavior change uh, orient themselves This is what's called the trans-theoretical model of change. No, you will not be quizzed on that term. Any person who's in the realm, the arena, the environment, the ecosystem, whatever word you want to use here, any person who's interested in change is going to fall in one of these phases of change. And really quickly, it's pre-contemplation, contemplation, preparation or determination, action, relapse, maintenance termination. Those are the phases. And I'll break each of these down. So pre-contemplation. That is where I have absolutely no interest in making a change. No, thank you. I'm doing just fine. I don't need your assistance. My life is gravy, baby. Go away. So these are the folks who say, let's, for example, if you're a nurse or a doctor or a health educator and you're speaking with someone about tobacco cessation, and you happen to know that the person you're speaking to uses tobacco products. And you might ask, are you interested in quitting? And someone in pre-contemplation would say, nope. And that would be the end of that conversation. (laughs) Uh, It used to be that us really well-intentioned little helpers would try and needle and push and cajole and motivate and all that stuff to try and get them to move the needle and go from no thank you to why, yes, of course I want to do whatever it is you say I should. And what enough researchers have determined after enough time of trying that is that's not helpful. When someone is in pre-contemplation, they're just not interested. Leave them alone. you know, no, I don't want your shoe shine, I don't want your, what you call it, I don't want your doohickey, I don't want your new phone brand, I don't want it. So don't t- keep trying to sell it to me. That's pre-contemplation. Please leave me alone. Contemplation is sort of the next phase. I'm I'm not exactly ready to make the change, but I'm thinking about it. I'm toying with it. Maybe I might one day do it, but I'm not committed. So that's the person who, let's say, is sitting in the doctor's office. Well, we're just using tobacco cessation since it's it's really concrete. You know, you're either a smoker or you're not. You're doing it or you're not. You know, it's not quite as complex as, say, eating better, quote unquote. So with tobacco cessation, you're in the doctor's office and the doctor says, oh, I see you're a smoker. Um, you know, you've got some high blood pressure, you've got some high cholesterol, and I, I don't know if you've thought about quitting smoking, but I think it might go a long way to Helping you reduce some of these markers, and someone in pre or excuse me in contemplation would say, "Yeah, I've been thinking about it, but I mean, I don't know, Doc. I there's a pandemic going on right now. I'm having to, you know, basically take care of my kids' education. I'm working full time from home. I my marriage is." really suffering. Like there's a lot going on in my life right now. And I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I know I probably should. I know it would be a good idea, but I just, I don't know. So this is a time when, if you are the provider or the coach or the whomever, often an appropriate response is, you know, well, would you like some information? Or even well, would you like to know what resources are available for that time when you would consider quitting? So it's not a I'm going to try and needle you and make you do it. But it's just really curiosity of like, OK, well, I, I hear one part of you is interested, but I also really do hear you say it's a really overwhelming time to make changes in your life right now. Uh um, What would support look like to you in this moment? Do you want some resources? I can give them to you. You can take them home. Maybe we can talk about it when we follow up at our next appointment. Or no, do you you just want to be left alone for now to keep mulling it over? So those are the appropriate kinds of things to be, well, contemplating. (laughs) So when you're in contemplation stage, that's when you're in that space of, I maybe, I don't know, possibly. Not ready to commit, but maybe. Then there's the preparation or what some call determination stage. So that is where same person, maybe in the conversation with their doctor, they took the resources. They said, yeah, you know, I'll take the pamphlets. That sounds like a good idea. And then they went home and they thought about it. They contemplated it. And they looked and noticed that one of the classes is online. And the facilitator is someone that he, she knows and happens to like, and he's looking at the timeline and thinking, hmm, well, I mean, this is, I could probably do it. It doesn't start until February, and well, that I don't have anything on Tuesday evenings. It looks like the class is on Tuesday. Maybe I should really think about this. So this is where the person is moving toward making a commitment and is preparing for what that would look like. So it's January and the class starts in February and this person might be thinking, yeah, I think, I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to give him a call and, uh, yeah, maybe I'll, maybe I'll register and I can always unregister, right? I, yeah, I can, and yeah, what would I have to do to, to make, I guess I'd need the syllabus and maybe I'll find out what more about what it all entails and yeah, I'll give him a call. So these are the kinds of things that a person who's in the preparation or determination stage would be doing. It's like, I, I want to do this. I've gone I've moved from no way, Jose, to, well, maybe, and now into, yeah, I think I really want to do this. And I'm gonna start making preparations for facilitating the greatest likelihood of success. Then there's the action stage. So this is where you've got the individual who's walking in the classroom and like sat down in that hot seat, is listening to the instruction, is taking notes, is marking down how much tobacco use is happening on a daily basis, all the things. So it's action. I'm in the realm of doing the thing. Then there's relapse. So relapse doesn't happen to everyone, but it happens to I actually don't know what the research is on this. I'm, I'm just throwing numbers out, but my hypothesis would be roughly 99.99% of people. It's why it's so firmly entrenched in the cycle because when trying to make a change, many of us would like to imagine that it's this nice, neat, tidy, linear line just going in a nice diagonal upward trajectory. I'm here and I'm going to go there and there's not going to be any twists, turns changes in my life. It's going to work out great. We'd all love that to be the case. For most of us mere mortals, that is not how it pans out. This individual might have decided, yeah, I'm going to set my quit date and my quit date is going to be March 14th. So the date comes and two weeks of success are sort of under the person's belt. Oh, right, it's been two weeks. I have not used a tobacco product. And then this person perhaps finds out that there's a family member in the hospital. And they're not quite sure what the problem is. Maybe it's just walking pneumonia. Maybe it's just a cold. Could be COVID. We don't really know. And the overwhelm just floods the system. The sense of, man, I thought I had this, but I just, I don't got this. I don't got this. And so this person, despite all of their best intentions, despite all of their preparation, all of their action steps, takes a deep breath and says, uh uh-uh, uh, I can't do it. Goes to the gas station across the street, gets a pack of cigarettes, and smokes one. That's the relapse phase that is not something that happens to those weaklings. It's not something that, oh, you did that thing. Ew. It's a natural part of change. It's this three steps forward, two steps back, four steps forward, five steps back, two steps forward, one step back. It's this very messy, nonlinear, bumpy ride, much like you would imagine it would look like to climb a mountain, you know, most trails don't just go straight up. They have to do some twisting and turning and there's some switchbacking and all of that. Then there's the maintenance phase. Maintenance phase is where you're in. You, the, um, the excitement is gone. <laughs> the this is... The zzz. <laughs> um, this is probably often more easily seen in the realm of, say, nutrition and exercise and fitness like the the romantic sense that I'm doing a new thing the novelty has worn off it's not all that exciting I'm not getting the buzz the the, I'm not getting the compliments from all the people who are going hoorah you that's not happening I'm in this sort of boring phase of just maintenance I'm keeping it going and over time, what would what hopefully happens is maintenance turns into uh, sort of an automated way of being in the world. It turns into this. Well, I just this is just what I do now. I I drink water instead of smoke cigarettes. I exercise every day. I whatever the thing is, this is what I do now. This is who I am. This is the way I navigate my daily activities, my routines. And then the final one. That is brought up here is termination. So termination is the other direction. It's away from maintenance. Uh, it's that realm when relapse has turned into, well, lapse has turned into relapse, which has then gone into behavior drift, which is now turned into termination. I'm back to smoking a pack a day or two packs a day or whatever. So these are all the different phases a person might go through. And often, at any given time, we can jump in and out of any one of these phases. We can get all the way into maintenance, and then life hits us hard, and we end up in relapse and then termination. You know, this is not this nice, clean little cycle of change. I bring this up as the foundation of today's talk because it's useful to keep this in mind, It's not as though, you know, when you see some people wildly successful at a resolution, changing a goal, doing whatever it is they're supposed to be doing, supposed to, I'm putting in quotations here, often a huge part of the reason for their success is because they happen to be in a phase of change that was extremely receptive as opposed to a place in their life when they just didn't have that level of receptivity. So it's just useful to keep that in the back, your back pocket, So now, with that in mind, we're going to start talking about habits, because this is where that line I mentioned earlier, you don't rise to the level of your goals, you fall to the level of your systems, becomes so important. If you want to make a behavior change stick, one of the most effective ways you can do that is make it easy. Make it so that it's automatic. Because the more bandwidth you have to use, the more challenging it will be to like make the habit become a system so actually I'll pause here too now I'm going to move into the realm of what's called that stages of competence again you won't be quizzed on any of this it's just useful to have as a sort of backdrop there's four stages that are often used one is called unconscious incompetence then it's conscious incompetence then it's conscious competence and then unconscious competence so real quickly here Unconscious incompetence is I don't know what I don't know. I'm going to actually use the analogy of driving a car for this one. I'm a kid. I'm in the passenger seat. I have no idea what is involved in driving a car. I see that you can do it, Mr. or Mrs. adult person, but I I don't know what I don't know. Maybe I'd be a great driver, but shrug. Unconscious incompetence. I don't know what I don't know. Conscious incompetence is that part of change where I'm doing the thing. So you're 16, you're learning to drive and you're doing fairly well, but every move requires conscious thought. When you turn on the blinker, you have to think, remember to turn on the blinker. You have to remember mindfully to have one hand on the 10 o'clock, one hand on the two o'clock for the steering wheel. You have to remember the parallel parking routine. It's not just automatic. Every maneuver is consciously done. That's conscious incompetence. Excuse me, conscious incompetence as I suddenly realize what I don't know. Uh, so I think I skipped ahead here, my apologies. So unconscious incompetence, shrug, Oh, Conscious incompetence is I now know how hard this thing is. So that would actually be when I'm just learning to drive. And everything feels like an, I'm on overwhelm. What? And I have to put this where? And I have to do this how? And I don't what? So I'm suddenly very aware of just how hard this thing is that I'm going to have to make happen. And then conscious competence is where, okay, I'm, I'm doing it. I'm, I'm getting on the road. I'm driving. I'm not running into things. I'm not bumping into the curb when I parallel park. But it is conscious. It's requiring a lot of bandwidth to make it happen. And then finally, we're in unconscious competence. That's where, I mean, you're driving and you practically lose time cruising down the highway and 10 minutes goes by and you go, huh, whoa, I was just daydreaming. My body has gotten so acclimated to the behaviors involved in driving a car that I'm not even thinking about it. It's just happening. So that place, that conscious, or excuse me, unconscious competence, that's the place that habits live. And that is where people like James Clear, like Charles Duhigg, James Clear wrote Atomic Habits, Charles Duhigg wrote The Power of Habit, that's where they want most of us to move toward. That's, they're interested in that because with the, that's where that whole systems arena lies. So then with that in mind, how the heck do you make a habit? <laughs> What's the difference between a thing that I have to work really hard to remember and a thing that I just do without thinking about it? I mean, I know the difference, but how do I move something? That How do I move the needle on it? So what James Clear would say is if you're trying to start a new habit, you have to start with something really small, like crazy small. Then you increase your habit in very small ways And as you start to build, you break those habits into chunks. We're going to go into more detail in just a second. But first, how do you even, when you, let's say that you decide whatever the habit is you're trying to build. We'll say exercise. This is a nice one because you're trying to make a habit instead of break one. Anytime you're trying to make a habit, you need three things. You need to know what the cue is, the action, and then what's the reward because that's how habits form. We don't do what we do because we're dumb. We do what we do because we're perhaps more clever than we should be. <laughs> like, we do things for rewards. You can see this much more easily with, say, you know, when you're training a, a puppy. You get the puppy to sit by, okay, sit. And then the minute that puppy sits, you give the dog a treat. Woo! And you give the, yay, here's a treat. And you do that over and over and over until the puppy has an association with the command sit and the reward. That reward, I mean, it tastes good. We're giving them an actual treat, but it also lights up dopamine in their brain. And you get to this place where that thing is so associated with reward that it just becomes commonplace. And then, presto, you have a trained puppy who knows how to sit. Same thing happens with human brains as it relates to habits, at least. So if you're trying to make exercise a new habit, First, you have to think, what could be the cue? The cue could be a time of day, uh, an alarm could go off. The cue could be anytime I see my gym clothes. the cue could be whatever the thing is. It's like, what's the cue? The action is the movement and the reward. Well, you have to decide on the reward. For some people, exercise is intrinsically rewarding. And for others, it's, you know, what am I going to gift myself with every time I do this thing? And then what Charles Duhigg would say is once you want to break that habit, it's using the same system, but you've just got to change the action. So if you have a habit in place that you don't want anymore, we'll go back to that smoking one. People smoke not because they're dumb, but because they're brilliant. It's doing something for them. Think about it. When you smoke a cigarette, you can't do it indoors anymore. So you have to go outside. Boo hoo, I have to get some fresh air. Oh, no. And think about the action. You're taking a deep breath and you're holding it and then there's this exhale. That's inherently rewarding all on its own. It's a very relaxing cycle that those deep breaths, even if you didn't have a cigarette, those deep breaths alone would be rewarding. Add into the equation that you're getting some fresh air, you're getting to take a pause from whatever it was you were doing. There's all kinds of things that are rewarding the brain and saying to the brain, this is a good idea. We should definitely do this again. And then on top of that, you have the added layer of a ton of chemicals that the tobacco industry has been very crafty at putting into that little sucker and making it extremely addictive on a chemical level. So you've got a perfect storm. There's the cue; Could be time of day. Could be a nicotine craving. There's the action. I go outside. I take a smoke. There's the reward. I get to feel relaxed. I get some fresh air. I get to feel like the, the nicotine craving gets, you know, that, the itch gets scratched. And so then that's why I keep repeating it. If I want to break that habit, it's not wise to just stop. Some people can do that. Good for them. For most of us though, it works out much better if we capitalize on that system we're basically trying to hijack it. What is the reward that you you specifically get from doing the thing you want to stop doing? If it's overeating, if it's smoking, if it's watching too much TV, if it's spending too much time on social media. Get really clear. What's the cue? What's the action? And what is the reward? And this will be different for every person. One person who wants to stop doing social media, might be getting the reward of connecting with other people. Another person might be getting the reward of just simply a distraction, of being able to check out for a few minutes. Everybody's a little bit different. Smoking is similar. For one person, maybe their reward when they go out to smoke a cigarette is that they smoke with their friends. So really, you're talking about an opportunity to connect to other human beings. And the cigarette is just a facilitator of that. For another person, who perhaps is more introverted... Getting out to smoke a cigarette is an opportunity to have some alone time. They can get some fresh air. So, for them, it's solitude they're after. Once you figure out what the reward is, you hijack the system and you say, okay, there was the cue time of day, stress, whatever. The action was smoking, but I think instead what I'm going to do is just go for a walk. Same amount of time, but I'm just going to walk around the building or whatever. And I still get the fresh air. I still get some alone time. I still get the reward but without using the action I was using before. And then for our more gregarious and extroverted person, maybe they recruit support from friends and say, hey, I'm really trying to quit and I, I would love some help. Would you mind sitting to lunch with me, going to lunch with me, doing a thing with me, whatever, whatever the thing is, even going on a walk with me? I don't know. You're getting the same reward, but using a different action. So you're hijacking it. That w- that's Charles Duhigg's work. So these are the things that are helpful when you're trying to create or mm, cut down on habits. Once you've decided on, okay, where, what was the cue? What's the action? What's the reward? That's where James Clear's work becomes really helpful. All right, I'm going to start with something really small. I want to quit smoking cigarettes. I don't think I can do it all in one swoop. I think I'm going to start with something really small. The first cigarette of the day is I just, I get up and immediately I have a cigarette with my coffee. I want to change just that. I want to try and redo that, that. I want to create a different habit there. So what can I do? I'm so used to having a cigarette with my coffee. Huh. How can I break that? Well, the cue, the alarm goes off. I put the coffee pot on. So there's the cues that are in place. What is a new action that I can implement that doesn't include having a cigarette? Maybe it's listening to music. Maybe it's uh, calling or writing in a journal. Maybe it's meditation. I don't know what it is. It can be any number of things, but it's just having the same cues in place and then changing that action in such a way that I still get some semblance of the reward I'm used to but I've made it very small. I'm just going to stop that ritual. I'm going to try and change that morning ritual because that, I think if I can break that one, that might really help me. Okay, great. So then once you have that start to become sort of build momentum, then you start to increase the habit in a really small way. All right. So I got this. I did this morning one. When do I usually have my second one? Well, usually that's my break at work. And then you start doing the same thing. So now you've gone from one to two that you've started to nix out of your routine. These are when you're trying to reduce your for the frequency of a thing. On the flip side of building, same idea. So if you're trying to create a habit around exercise, you don't want to go from zero to 60 minutes a day. It's not cute. I mean, maybe some people can do it, but leave that to those individuals. <laughs> no one likes to hang out with those guys. <laughs> um, I'm kidding. So... If you're not exercising at all, and you think of exercise as this sort of a punishment, you know it's good for you, but oh, uh, the struggle is so real. I don't want to. Then think of something really small, and ideally something that would even be enjoyable. Our bodies were designed to move. So what is a way or a style of movement that is at the very least inoffensive? And what is an amount of time that would be laughably easy? Five minutes, two minutes. There is no amount that's too small, except, of course, for zero. But it's just starting with something very, very small and then increasing it by increments that are also small gradually over time. So then, uh, this is actually coming into, uh, you know, bringing into f- the, the concept of the 1% rule. Whatever it is you want to try and improve on, don't try and go from zero to 100 just improve by 1% every day, these tiny little increments of improvement. Okay, so all of that in play, all of that discussed, what about willpower? Feel like we need to talk about that because everybody wants to talk about willpower, especially as it relates to people's health. If you just have some willpower, You can eat matter, and you would exercise more. You just need willpower, and you'll stop doing the thing that we want you to stop doing. That's cute, but turns out willpower, just like anything else on this planet, gets a little complicated. First, willpower is what comes online, the, the, the character that's sort of responsible for it, in case you're curious, and this comes up on Jeopardy someday, is the prefrontal cortex. So it's the front part of our brain. And that part of our brain is like the executive decision maker. That's the guy or gal or, I don't know, that is the being within us that's responsible for slowing things down. When I see a cupcake, but I know I should reduce my sugar intake, it's the prefrontal cortex that comes online. So it's like the amygdala, all these other primal aspects of our brain comes online and goes, ooh, that looks tasty. I definitely want me one of those. And then you're about to reach for it and the prefrontal cortex yells out, Stop! Don't do it. You have a goal, remember? You want to get off your diabetes medication or you wanted to get more fit this year or whatever. You're reaching for the thing, and it's the prefrontal cortex that makes you pause and say, no, I know you think you want this, but there's something else you want more. It's the long-term goal maker instead of the instant gratification person. How does one cultivate more of that? <laughs> because if you want to have more willpower, it because it is useful, how does one rally that and get more of it. First, it's useful to remember that willpower is a little bit like having a budget every day. We have a finite amount of it. We can't just exert willpower all throughout the day, 24 hours a day. It's not how the brain works. It's a little bit like a muscle. You know, it gets fatigued. This is part of why when people have really ambitious nutrition goals you know I'm gonna stop eating sugar I'm gonna eat six servings of vegetables every day I'm not gonna eat blah blah I'm not gonna drink blah blah I don't know what it is whatever your thing the morning time most people do really well the afternoon a little less well and by evening time even if we've done exceptionally well all day long suddenly we get home from a long day and we eat all the things And then, of course, we feel shame and guilt and misery and, oh, what's wrong with me? How come everyone else can figure this out and I can't figure this out and blah, 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 blah. There's nothing wrong with you. Congratulations, you are a human whose brain is working like a human brain. That's how willpower works. We have more of it at the start of the day and less of it by the end. It also gets taxed when we're under more stress. It also gets taxed when we are sleep-deprived. So all of this is to say that if you want more willpower in your life, you can rally it by exercising your body. I know, you would think that that wouldn't be a thing. Just because you move your body, your brain gets more, and that's, it turns out that's true. Exercising the body helps feed that prefrontal cortex. It gives it, you'll see more activity in that area of the brain when you've moved. Next is Mindfulness. So meditation exercise, you know, deep breathing exercises, any kind of meditative mindfulness activity, you'll see increasing quantities of not only will you see more activity in the prefrontal cortex, but you'll start to see it expand like the gray matter in the brain expand, you'll start to see in real terms the capacity for willpower expand. Nutrition when you're eating sugar all throughout the day, your blood sugar goes on a roller coaster ride. So you get the wee crash, wee crash, wee crash. It's very difficult to have willpower when you're trying to navigate it, blood sugar roller coaster rides. And finally, sleep. If you want more willpower in your life, the best thing you can do is get enough sleep. Uh, if you want to remove your willpower, what you can do is, uh, well, I suppose you could take the prefrontal cortex out of your head, your brain. I mean, that's one option. I wouldn't recommend it. Um, I'm pretty attached to mine. But you can do the equivalent of removing it if you drink alcohol. turns off the prefrontal cortex. And you can do the equivalent when you do not get enough sleep. So you might hear from a lot of folks that they don't tend to eat as well when they haven't slept well the night before. That doesn't make you a weakling it makes you a human with a human brain that is allocating its resources the best it can and if you haven't gotten enough sleep it pretty much decides well we've decided we're not going to allocate resources to the prefrontal we're going to instead divert it to your extremities because clearly if you're not sleeping you must be stressed and if you're stressed there must be a predator and if there's a predator we don't need you to have willpower right now we just need you to survive So we switch into survival mode instead of being in the realm of uh, thriving, of, of contemplating, of being discerning. And the final thing to keep in mind about willpower, and this is the one that's very helpful to keep in mind, guilt and shame are not your friend. Funny enough, shame and pleasure are interesting bedfellows. The more shame we feel about doing a thing, the more we think it will be pleasurable, like our brains do this funny thing where the more bad, quote unquote, the thing is that we think we're about to do, the more likely it is that number one, we'll think it's super pleasurable and number two, that we're going to do it again. You'd think it'd be the opposite. You'd think that we, the more shame we'd feel, we'd almost get this negative response where we wouldn't want to do it again, but the opposite happens. So if I'm trying to reduce the quantity of sugar I consume, And I do that for some period of time. And then I eat a cookie. And I feel shame around that. Rather than that helping me, I will be more likely to eat a second and a third and so on. I'll also be more likely to eat it the following day. Versus having compassion where I say, you know, yeah, I had a cookie. But you know what? It's the first one I've had in two weeks. I used to eat three a day. This is really not that big a deal. I'm going to call it a vegetable and move on. Those individuals are going to be much more likely to maintain their progress than the folks who berate themselves for not having been perfect. So, perfectionism, also not your friend. And then the final thing I'll say about willpower it's contagious on both ends of the spectrum. So, when you're around people that are engaged in behaviors that you want to adopt, you'll be much more likely to adopt them yourself and be successful. When you're around people who are engaged in behaviors that you're trying to reduce, you'll be less successful because our behaviors are incredibly contagious. Just as an example, research shows that if my friend loses weight, I am 50% more likely to lose weight myself, even if I had no intention of doing so. And if my friend gains weight, same thing even if i had no intention of doing so even if i didn't have any idea that my friend was trying to go one way or the other i will be impacted by that there's a whole plethora of reasons for why but who you recruit, recruit to support you matters so all of that in play how do we get like how do we get to the bare bones brass tacks what do i need to do to make a habit stick like give me details I'll start with the more broad, and then I'll go into the narrow. You need three things broadly. You need the what, as in what do you need to know. You need to know the why, as in what's in it for you. And then you need to know the how. This is called the IMB model, information, motivation, and behavioral skills. Once again, no quizzes here, but in case Jeopardy asks, IMB model. Anyway, so the what. If you're trying to say reduce your body fat percentage. Okay, what do you need to know? You need to know about exercise. You need to know about nutrition. Uh, You need to know about hormone balance. You need to know about what it is you need to do to reduce your body fat percentage. Let's say that you're trying to get off of your blood pressure medication. Well, the what would be, well, what do you need to know? The what would be, you know, perhaps reducing your salt intake and increasing your potassium intake. It would be, uh, you know, exercising your body more frequently. You know, it's like, this is my goal. This is what I really want to achieve. To the extent that it's possible, I want to see how many of these medications I can get off just from changing my lifestyle. Okay, well, then you need to know what lifestyle choices that are linked with the kind of outcome you want to have. That's the what. I don't know anyone who is struggling with a What? We live in an age of Google. I I don't know anyone who says, God, you know, I really wish that I could quit smoking. If I just had more information about how bad tobacco was for me, it would fix it. Nope. And it's really tragic because a lot of us in the wellness arena still operate as though that's true. I know this person needs to do X, Y, and Z. I'll just keep telling them more about why they should, you know, like what to do. They don't need more information most of the time. Occasionally it happens. So, you know, maybe someone thinks that if they want to lose their body fat percentage, it means all they have to do is stop eating. And I'd go, well, um, actually, don't do that. And here's why. I mean, so I'm not saying it's a 0%, but it's a small percentage. Most people know that if they want to change their body composition, they need to engage in more exercise, and improve their nutrition, and get better sleep. Like, it's, it's not rocket science. Most people know it. It's not about the what. The next one down is the why. Motivation is a very important feature in any kind of behavior change. So the why is you, you want it to be something that's intrinsic and that's connected with you as a person. So if my doctor says to me, I think you should lose some body fat here, like your, your body fat percentage is at a 34% and we'd like to see it closer to a 28% random numbers here. But if my doctor is the only reason that I'm considering it, that's not necessarily going to be helpful. I don't have a why that's going to inspire me versus let's say I have, you know, I'm I noticed that my family members, who are you know in their sort of elderly years, their bones are getting increasingly brittle. They, uh, they, they, one of them got a hip injury. The, they have diabetes. They have all these chronic ailments, and I spoke with my doctor about it and said, "I want to reduce my risk." And my doctor said, "Well, here's what I'm noticing. I'm, I'm noticing that, you know, your your body fat percentage is a little bit high, and your muscle mass is a little bit low, and." You know, your blood pressure is a little high and your blood sugar is a little high. Nothing too crazy. But, you know, if you really wanted to reduce your risk and remain independent long term, I would actually recommend that you increase your muscle mass and maybe integrate some strength training exercises. And, you know, maybe I'd talk to a dietitian about what it is you're eating and et cetera, et cetera. Well, now I've got a, I'm motivated. Like I've recruited the support from my doctor, but it wasn't my doctor who told me that I needed to do the thing. In some ways it's the same, but in other ways it's miles apart. If I'm the one initiating it because I have a why that's important. You know, I want to get off medication because I want to be alive for my granddaughter's graduation. <laughs> my granddaughter's two years old and I want to see her graduate from college. Um, uh, that's a very different thing than, oh, doctor said I should, so guess I better. Then the final one is the how, and this is where the rubber meets the road. The how is where you create an ecosystem of success. Plenty of people are good with the what, a ton of people are good with their why. This is not, a, We you know, Americans are not an unmotivated group and Americans are not a stupid group. Where we struggle is with the How? And the how needs a bunch of pieces in place to make it stick. I call these strong, (laughs) strong skills. Instead of willpower, let's go skill power. So the first is having really specific action goals. So S for specific action goals. So none of this, I want to lose 2% of body fat by X date. No, no, that's not an action. You can't make your body fat percentage change. I want to... No, like I want to get my blood pressure down by X degree points. Also not an action. You can't make your blood pressure come down. Instead, what you'd say is I'm going to exercise 10 minutes a day, every day, Monday through Friday. Very specific. T, track your progress. Put it on a calendar. Get it on an app. You're tracking your progress because what we monitor moves. R is reward. Have a reward in place for the action. So remember that cue action reward. It's not about rewarding the outcomes. You don't reward whether you, your body fat percentage change or your muscle mass gains. You don't reward you know, your blood pressure medications coming down. You reward the behaviors. That's what makes a habit stick. Next is organize, as in organize your environment. If you're trying to increase your exercise minutes, do you know where your gym clothes are? Do you know where your tennis shoes are? Do you know where your equipment is? Do you know where you're going to be driving? Organize your environment so that you don't have to work harder. The next is nourish, which means make the goal inherently nourishing. Don't choose to exercise in a way that you hate. Lots of people will say, oh, I hate running. Okay, well, then don't do that one. (laughs) Do something you actually enjoy. Make it something that, yeah, even if it's kind of a challenge, it feels pleasurable when you're doing it. And then finally, G is get support, because remember, willpower, success, they're contagious. So support looks like two things. Number one, it can be a change partner, and number two, it can be a supporter. Change partners are the people that do things with you. Your supporters are the people who say, eh, I don't really want to do it, but I'll do whatever I can to help you be successful. So your change partner is the person who says, I want to improve what I'm eating too. Your supporters are, uh, I'm not really interested in changing what it is I eat, but I'm happy to do something to support you and make it easy enough that you can. Yeah? Yeah? (laughs) So don't try and be perfect. It's strong over perfect. Have a specific action goal. Track your progress. Have rewards for the behaviors. Organize your environment Nourish yourself. So make it a nourishing behavior change and get support. Finally, if you want to make it stick and you're feeling overwhelmed and you're thinking, all of this is way too much, how can I possibly put all of this in play? You're not alone. You're always welcome to reach out to the Community Health Education Center. So we've got a number of classes. We've got health educators here that can talk in more detail about this. We have a library with books like James Clear's book, Atomic Habits, like Charles Duhigg's book, Power of Habit. So if you're really feeling like you need more resources or more support or you just kind of want to sink your teeth more into this stuff, you can reach us by going to our website, www got salemhealth.org/check. So again that's www.salemhealth.org/c C-H-E-C, h e c check. You're also welcome to give us a call. That's 503-814-check so 2432. And of course you can find us at our podcast website. So that's podbean, you know, checkyourself.podbean.com. Um, It's been such a pleasure. I hope this information was helpful to you. And I will see, well, hear from you. You know what I mean. We'll be back next week. Take good care.